I'd like to do something a little, a little special. I'd like, I'd like to lead us in prayer about something. Uh, you know, most of most of you know that we're looking for a site on the west side so that we can this fall begin meeting uh, in worship both in the east side and the west side. And we haven't found a site yet. And it's still four months away. I had a recently I had a very interesting experience with music. Have any of you ever noticed that music doesn't just help you remember facts, but it helps you remember emotions? Uh, for example, you might remember that you were very sad. You remember the fact that you were sad at the prom? Then suddenly you, you hear the music, and you can actually remember the feeling that you had. You feel the feeling. Um, before I came here, I remember in the, uh, in the spring of 1989, two or three months before we moved here to start this church, I remember the fact that I was scared and I was very hopeful. And I remember I prayed all the time. I remember the fact. But recently I pulled out a tape that I remember that I was listening to when I was preparing talks for a, a singles retreat down in Washington, D.C. area just before I came up here. And I was praying all the time. And when I put the music on, I was astounded because I could remember not just that I was hopeful and I was scared, but I remembered I felt hopeful and I felt scared. I remembered the prayers. I, me I remembered them completely. And then I suddenly realized how extravagant God was in answering those prayers. And I realized that when God delays something, it's always so that we will have more joy and more strength of character when he finally comes through. He always delays, so we'll pray for our benefit. Now, what I've been doing is I've been praying about the West Side lately, and it's a serious issue. We've really got to find some place. And I'm going to lead us all in prayer as a congregation. I'm going to pray a prayer I've been working on praying every day. And I hope some of you will get the gist of it and, and pray as well. And we've been praying in various places all over the place, but we haven't done it here, so let's do it. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our Father, you have been our dwelling place. You're our shelter, our home, our rock, our fortress, our high tower, our refuge in the wilderness. And our lack of a building as a congregation, a lack of a building that we can call our own, has very graciously been used by you in our lives to help us see that you are really these things to us. But Lord, we are creatures who live in time and space, and we need a place. We need a place to meet. We need a place to worship. We'll need a place so that we can serve our neighbors. So now, Lord Jesus, you heard the door. Would you open doors? real doors for us. Would you give us places to stand and praise your name and serve you all over the city, but we ask that you would start someplace on the west side. Open hearts and minds as well as doors to get us that place and to give us new neighbors who we can love and serve with the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you're a prayer-hearing God and all of your delays are mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we're uh, looking at uh, the character, character change. How can you really change in your heart? Let's read Luke 17, 3 to 19. It's in your bulletin. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Oh, excuse me. The... 
The apostles said to the Lord, increase, actually listen to what I'm reading. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. And now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going to a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is God's Word. We're looking at the difference between moral reformation and spiritual transformation. Moral reformation in which the heart is restrained, spiritual transformation in which the heart is actually changed. Uh, In moral reformation, you can be honest, but you're honest either out of fear, I don't want to get caught, or out of pride, I'm not one of those liars and cheaters. You see, in other words, the the natural pride and fear that lead you to lying anyway are are essentially jury-rigged. They're used to keep you honest, but see how fragile that would be. The real root of lying isn't isn't removed. In moral reformation, out of fear and out of self-interest and out of pride, you're honest. But spiritual transformation means something deep down in the heart changes so that no matter what you're honest, even when it doesn't pay, even when it's deeply, deeply humbling. Uh, Spiritual transformation is deep change in the heart. Now, how does deep change in the heart work? Well, we've been saying every week in this series that deep change in the heart only comes not by looking at the rules, but by by looking at the ruler. Not by looking at the law, but by looking at the lawgiver, at Jesus. And not just looking at Jesus' love, and Jesus' joy, uh, Jesus' sacrifice, and Jesus' endurance, not just by looking at them as a model, abstract, saying, I have to be like that, but as, as a Savior. If you see Him loving you, if you see Him sacrificing for you, if you see Him enduring for you, then that is what changes us at the deep level. So we're looking at Jesus' love, Jesus' joy, Jesus' endurance, and today we're looking at Jesus' patience. And the word patience means a forgiving spirit. And Jesus Christ, though he models forgiveness, and we'll refer to that, on the cross, he models it when he says, Father, forgive them. He models it when he, when he uh, uh, forgives the disciples who fall asleep. He models it, but here he tells us the structure. Now, how can you have the incredible forgiving spirit of Jesus? You see Jesus up on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for crucifying me. If you just see that as a model, you say, I can never do that. I'm not Jesus. But there is a way. 
Let's take a look, first of all, what Jesus gives us here as the practice of forgiveness, and then, secondly, the power of forgiveness. See, in verses 3 to 6, there's a lot there you're going to see. He tells us something about the practice, what forgiveness actually is. He, he tells you what to do. But then, in verses 7 and following, he shows you how to get the power to do it. I want you to know that some of you are going to squirm for the next few minutes because we're going to talk about the practice before we talk about the power. And therefore, an awful lot of this is going to sound impossible. But first of all, we need to see what he actually calls you to do. Then we'll see how you can get the power to do it. Okay, the practice of forgiveness. There's three things here Jesus tells us, which is very important to understand if we're going to understand how forgiveness works. The average person thinks of forgiveness like this. They say, okay, I'm mad. I should be patient. I should be forgiving. I'm, but I'm mad, and I'm trying to stop being mad, but I can't. And that's what most people mean when they say, I can't forgive. They say, I'd like to forgive, or I'm trying to forgive. I'm mad, but I, I'm trying to stop being mad, but I can't forgive. And, but Jesus will show you here that you shouldn't just try to stop being mad. You're getting a hold of the wrong end of the stick. That's not what forgiveness is, in essence, anyway. Forgiveness, he gives us three things. First of all, this is three things he tells us about forgiveness, the practice of forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is a particular aim. I won't, this is, okay. Forgiveness is an aim, a goal. There's a, there's a goal in forgiveness, or it's not really forgiveness. And a lot of what we think is an effort of forgiveness really isn't, once we understand the aim. What's the aim? Look at verse 3 carefully. I meditated on this. Verse 3 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, I would like to stress something that we don't usually see at first, the unity of that, those two clauses. That is not two sentences. That is one sentence. This is not two different people. I'm rebuking a person who sins and I forgive. A this is the same person that we're talking about here. Or put it another way. Jesus doesn't say, if your brother re re uh, sins against you, rebuke him. Oh, and if he repents, you can forgive him. No. The repenting and the rebuking, pardon me, the rebuking and the forgiving, the rebuking and the forgiving absolutely go together. Look carefully. What he's saying is you rebuke in order to forgive. You rebuke coiled to forgive, straining to forgive, having essentially already inside, having already forgiven. Otherwise, otherwise why would you rebuke in order to get forgiveness? What you're, you've already forgiven in your heart, and now you just want to express it relationally. You want to give, get it out. You want to reconcile. In other words, Jesus absolutely demands that rebuking and forgiving go together. They must go together. In fact, he's going so far, I think, here as to tell us that if you think you have one without the other, you really don't have either. You see, if you rebuke, but when you rebuke, you don't have this very forgiving spirit. Then no matter what you think, no matter how much you claim that you're trying to tell them the truth, you're not actually trying to tell the truth, you're trying to punish. Or on the other hand, if you say, I forgive, it means you're unwilling to rebuke. You're willing to let somebody just go on in sin. You're unwilling to rebuke. If you say, I'm unwilling to rebuke, then no matter how much you claim you're loving that person, you're not really loving that person. You're selfishly just trying to get a lack of trouble and peace for yourself. What Jesus Christ does by sticking rebuking and forgiving together, he unmasks us. Some of us flatter ourselves to say, I'm not one of those cowards, I speak out. 
But if your rebuking almost never leads to softening and repentance. Do you hear me? If your rebuking is sort of like a bomb on a fire, it just spreads it. If your rebuking almost never gets people soft and repentant, but almost always just gets them more angry, then you're not really rebuking the way Jesus is talking about here. Do you see that? You're not really, all you're after is a selfish punishment. And if you say, oh, now, see, some people say, I'm not one of those cowards, I rebuke. There's a lot of the rest of us that say, I'm not one of those troublemakers. I'm not one of those people who's always complaining. Not me. I'm a peacemaker. I keep my mouth shut. But your real aim, see, just like the real aim of a rebuker who never finds people repenting, actually, the real aim, I said, was a selfish desire to punish. So a person who always keeps his or her mouth shut never confronts, just lets the person go on in sin, then your real goal is not love, it's, it's, it's your own selfish peace. By Jesus putting the two together and insisting they have to go together, they have to go together if they're real, what he's really showing us is the aim of real forgiveness is to stop the spread of wrong and evil. Listen, the goal should be I'm here to stop the spread of wrong and evil. I don't want it to spread in that person's life. I don't want it to spread into my life. I don't want it to spread into the lives of the people around me. If you rebuke and nobody ever gets softened, you're really after just punishment. And if you never open your mouth, you're really after your own selfish peace. But to tell, to tell the truth, just tell the person off, or just to make peace is not the goal of forgiveness. The goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil and wrong. Let's move on, okay? Secondly, second thing we learn here Forgiveness is not just an aim, it's an action. Now, this is completely against what most people think. Most people believe that forgiveness is basically a feeling that leads to an action. If I could just get past the anger, then I could treat the person right. See, most people think of forgiveness as basically an a, a feeling that leads to an action, but Jesus Christ here pretty much shows, pretty much shows that forgiveness is an action primarily that leads to a feeling. And you know why we know that? Because he says here, if your brother sins against you and asks for your forgiveness seven times, look, in a day. Now, that's not in some of the other texts. Some of you remember other texts where Jesus says 70 times seven. Well, that's not the text we have. And uh, that, that's got a point, and that means unlimited and all that. But here, what he's talking about is seven times in a day. And why does he say in a day? I'll tell you why. This goes to show, first of all, that your forgiveness cannot be based on that person's performance. There's no way you could possibly know this person is sincere in one day. As a matter of fact, if it keeps happening, you know the person isn't sincere. The forgiveness has nothing to do with that person's performance. Ah, you say, now wait. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully, because somebody's going to hit me with the, in the Q&A afterwards with this, unless I tell you this now. They can say, wait a minute. Yes, wait a minute. Your forgiveness is conditioned on his performance. He's got to repent. It says, if he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, I can keep my grudge. But wait. Well, now listen. Oh, listen. Even if you don't actually, if you never had that text before, you're living that way. You're saying, if that person you know, repents, then I can forgive him. Of course, that person's over there thinking the same thing about you. No wonder the world is the condition it's in. But Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, if you're standing and you're praying and you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Notice, it doesn't say, if the person repents. If you're standing and you're praying and you know you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Well, now, how could Mark 20, 11, 25 
say that, where here it seems to say that only if a person repents are you to forgive him. Well, how do you get the two together? It's not that hard because we said in verse 3, the unity of rebuking and forgiving is, means this. The reason you rebuke is in order to forgive, which means you've already forgiven in the heart. You've already done the Mark 11 thing. Here the word forgiveness basically means reconcile. It means you would only want to reconcile if you've already forgiven in the heart. And therefore, what we really see here is that your forgiveness has nothing to do with performance, but not only that, it can't have anything to do with your feelings. Forgiveness has got to be something you can do and still be angry because there's no way you can get rid of your anger seven times in a day. Jesus is trying to... He can't possibly be saying every single time somebody asks for you know, forgiveness. You give them forgiveness. Even if it's seven times in a day, he can't be saying, get over your anger. He can't be saying, just get, away, get rid of it. He can't ask for that. He wouldn't ask for that. And if you really want to see uh, this, you have to realize that when the apostles say in verse 5, increase our faith, you know what they're doing. See, they're using the word faith. Basically, there's an aspect of the word faith that means certainty and feeling. And what they're saying is, we don't have the strength for that. Forgive somebody like that? Forgive them even when we're, we're still mad at them? Forgive them in spite of the fact that they may not have borne fruits of repentance, in spite of the fact they haven't really changed? Forgive them? Increase our faith. And what does Jesus say? I could go into more detail again afterwards if somebody wants to ask me that, you may. I can't get into all of it, but what he's essentially saying in verse 6, he says, that you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, get into the ocean. Remember, there's other places where he says, you could say to this mountain, be moved. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, this is not a matter of feeling. This is a matter of acting on what you know. This is, you can do this. This is not a matter of feeling. This is a matter of, of just taking what you already know, what you already have, and exercising it. Forgiveness is something that you can do without having to get rid of your anger yet, when you're still angry. So first of all, forgiveness, what, is an aim. Secondly, forgiveness is what? An action. Well, thirdly, if somebody's saying, okay, what is the action? What is this thing? Thirdly, forgiveness is acceptance. Now, here's what I mean. When I, when I looked up this word, forgive, he says, forgive. If your brother repents, forgive. I looked up this word in a, in a Greek concordance. Now, a Greek concordance means it shows you every other time the Greek word shows up, and to my astonishment, it comes up dozens of times in the Bible, but it's very seldom translated forgive because it has a very interesting meaning. The word forgive that's used here is a word that simply means let it be where it is. For example, this word shows up twice in Matthew 3.15. I turn to it and I, what? It's, it's a little Greek word. It's a Greek word, ephemi, okay? Jesus in Matthew 3.15 is talking to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has just said, me, <laughs> baptize you, I am not going to do it. I dare not do it. You're asking me to baptize you. I won't do it. I will not do this duty. I will not do this thing. And Jesus says, ephemi, which means, in the old King James, it says, suffer it. And then immediately, John the Baptist, it's in the Greek, it says, and John ephemed, which, And in the old King James, it says, Jesus said, suffer it, <laughs> and John suffered it. In the New International Version, it says, Jesus says, let it be so, and John consented. If you go over to Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a, a servant and a king. 
and the servant owed the king 10,000 talents, huge sum. And we're told by Jesus, he uses the word again, at this time it is translated forgive. It's one of the only other times he says it this way. It says the king forgave the debt. But now, we, now you're beginning to understand what's going on here. He assumed the debt. Now, to assume a debt is different than holding the debt and waiting to give it away. Holding on to it and saying, I'm not going to pay this. I'm not going to pay this. When you get out of prison, when I get you, every time you make a little bit of money, I'm going to take, I'm going to take. No, no. When the king forgave the debt, what did it mean? It mean he let it be. He, he kept it. He had it. He didn't give it away. John the Baptist says, I want to give this away. Jesus says, keep it. But not just keep it. Assume it. Accept it. I want you to do this. Which means, what does it mean to forgive a debt? What does it mean to forgive somebody who sinned? Two things. Number one, the first thing you've got to do is you have to assess how much this person has robbed you of. Whenever somebody sins, wrongs you, sins against you, whenever somebody wrongs you, they also rob you. That's what Jesus is saying here. When someone wrongs you, they've also robbed you. They've robbed you of joy. They've robbed you of a goal. They've robbed you of reputation. They've taken things. They took a goal away. They took some comfort away. They took, they, they took, they've taken something from you. And so the first thing you've got to do if you're ever going to forgive somebody is you've got to be willing to assess the debt. Now, this is not what I have to, let me be frank here. Many Christians, they don't do this, and here's why you don't. Because your idea of forgiveness is to say, it's not that big a deal. Your idea of forgiveness is to say, it didn't bother me, it didn't get to me. No, no, it's okay. In other words, essentially, a lot of people say, forgiveness means to convince myself it wasn't serious. To convince myself it really didn't hurt me. To convince myself I really wasn't robbed. That's how I can forgive. That's how I can get past my anger. And every psychologist in the world will tell you that's dangerous. And Christians maybe are the worst at that. What they, in other, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You have to assess the size of the debt. But then you assume the debt. You don't just hold on to it. Assuming the debt means you pay it. Suffer it. You pay it. You don't hold on and wait to take payments from the person who wronged you. You make payments and what happens if you make payments long enough on a debt? It's gone. And if, if you make payments and refuse to take payments instead of hold on to the debt and wait for payments or try to take payments, then your anger will eventually go. You have to grant forgiveness before it's felt. You make the payments. You assume it. Now, somebody says, what do you mean? Well, okay, let's, let's be real, real specific. If you want to forgive, even when you're angry, you, you determine... I'm no longer, I'm deliberately, consciously, I'm refusing to take payments. Now, how do you take payments from somebody who's wronged you? Well, let me give you a list. Number one, one of the things you can do is you can, when you're, when you're with the person, you can be cold to the person. Or, here's another way to take payments. You can be more demanding and controlling you would be with that person than anybody else. Or, you can try to shame that person by being extremely merciful, but it's a kind of self-righteous sort of mercy. Or you can actively try to hurt the person. Or you can just ignore the person. In every case, what you're doing is you're taking payments. You see, you're not making payments. You're holding on to the debt, but you're not really assuming the debt. 
Let me give you some other ways you can take payments. When you're with other people, hey, here's two great ways. You can slice the person's reputation up under the guise of warning people about them. Hey, I think you need to know this about this person. Another way you can take payments is you can slice people's reputation up when you're talking to other people under the guise of sharing your hurt. You can say, I really need somebody to listen to me. And what you're doing is you're taking payments. See, I was robbed, and I'm going to get it out of that person's hide. I'll give you a third way. A third way you can take payments is not just in your relationship to the offender and, uh, and not just in your uh, talking with to other people, but the third way is in your heart you root for that person to hurt. You root for that person to get his comeuppance. You root for that person uh, to fail. You're pulling for, for that person to do, do badly. You're sticking little pins in that person. You're replaying the tapes to justify your anger. And in all those ways, you are trying to exact the price from them. You're trying to take payments. Instead, even though you're angry, you say, I am not going to take payments. I refuse to take payments. And then secondly, I refuse to treat them that way. I refuse to talk about them that way. I refuse to think of them that way. And then secondly, you make payments. And here's what I mean. Making payments is very, very costly. When you're with that person, you're cordial as much as you possibly can be. You do not let that person walk all over you. You don't make it easy for that person to sin. You don't make it easy for that person to sin. Why? That's not loving. Remember, verse 3, you rebuke and forgive. They, they go together. But when you do it, there's got to be plenty of forgiveness. A red face, bulging veins in the neck are never going to change that person. And you know why they're never going to change that person? Because you're rebuking without forgiving. And, of course, you forgive without rebuking. I mean, that's not real forgiveness. And rebuking without forgiveness is really, as we said, is not really, really enlightenment. But you see, if you're with that person, to whatever degree you can, to be cordial and warm, that's costly. That's making payment. Secondly, if you're with that person, uh, you're talking to somebody else, excuse me, you're talking to somebody else, you're talking to someone else, and you affirm and praise that person instead of cut them down, that's costly. And thirdly, in your own heart, if you pray for that person, of course you're praying that the person wakes up, but if you pray for that person's prosperity, if you pray for that person's good, if you pull, if, if, you, if you will the good for them, that's costly. That'll be like Gethsemane for you. Because to pray like that, you'll sweat blood. But I say to you, and I hope you can hear this, if you make payments on a debt and you continue to make payments on a debt over and over and you refuse to take payments but you, refuse, you make payments, what will eventually happen to that debt? It'll go. If you grant forgiveness, eventually you'll feel it. So, you see, forgiveness is a name, forgiveness is an action, forgiveness is assumption of the debt. It's an acceptance. Well, somebody says, you warned me. You warned me I'd be ticked. You warned me I'd be upset. You warned me I'd be confused. You, you warned me that I would say, I can't possibly do this. But yes, you can, because there's something else happening. When the disciples say, increase our faith, everything Jesus says for the rest of that chapter is designed to do it. When, he sa when they say, we can't, Jesus says, there's two things you need and you can get them. And you know what these two things are? Number one, you've got to be humble in order to forgive. You've got to be humble. One of the reasons, I'll put it to you this way. If you are always late for appointments and somebody is late for your appointment, fairly easy to forgive because you don't feel superior. 
But if you are never late for appointments, and somebody's late for an appointment, it's very hard to forgive. Why? Because if you feel superior to a person, you can't forgive them, and, I'll, and vice versa. If you can't forgive somebody, you definitely feel superior to them at that moment. Jesus Christ tells a story. Why would he tell this story right away? He would say, he would say, imagine you're a servant. Well, now, right away, one of the problems we have in America is we might read our experience of servanthood and slavery into this. And you have to remember that the only servanthood, and, and sometimes they're translated slave, the only servanthood the Bible countenances is this sort of thing, debtor service. If you went into uh, debt to somebody and you couldn't pay them, you didn't just declare bankruptcy, whoops, a somewhat more just approach was you had to work for that person until the debt was gone. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is trying to say something. When they say, we can't forgive, what is Jesus saying? He says, does a person who's now working off a debt for a master, does a person who's now working off a debt, does that person expect thanks when they come and just do what they, what they have to do? No. They don't expect thanks. They don't expect applause. This is just what they owe. Do you know what you owe God? That's what Jesus is saying. Do you understand that here's the Lord who gave you everything, and you have been living as if you are his, your own Lord and Savior? See, a lot of people, when they hear Jesus teaching on forgiveness, they say, that is unjust. That is unjust. Why should I pay the debt? That is unjust. Never ask for justice, because God might give it to you. What if everything you ever got away with what if everything you've ever done wrong, I mean, let's just let's speak humanistically for a second. What if everything you've ever done wrong, that you never really, that you got away with, what if for some reason God said, oh, okay, I'll give it to you. When you say, this isn't fair, God says, this is what you owe me. If I ever gave you what you really deserve, you'd be gone. You owe forgiveness because you have gotten so much. So you see, the first thing is, you cannot, if somebody says, I can't get past my anger, well, I have to say this, you're not remembering who you are. Jesus says you're a servant. And not only that, you're a servant acting like a king. When you say, I can't forgive, what you mean is, I am the judge. When you say, I can't forgive, what you mean is, first of all, you, you assume you know enough to know how bad that sin was. You don't know about that person's past. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. You don't know what that person's been through. Only the judge of all the earth would know that. But because you're bitter, you're assuming that though you're a servant, you act like a king. Not only that, you, you can only be bitter if you assume the knowledge that the king of the universe would have, but not only that, you assume the goodness of the king. Now, I mean, the only person that can really forgive, I mean, re really say, this is wrong, it would be a good person, but you're not a good person, not in every old way. And so, you see, you're a servant acting like a king, and that's the reason why you're having the problem you're having. Well, Jesus Christ says, you need humility. Where do you get that? Do you just look at Jesus Christ? Yes, you look at Jesus Christ, but not just in general. Here's what you do. The only way you will ever get past this problem, we all have it, you don't know yourself if you don't know that. We are servants acting like kings. Now, if you just look at this parable and you say, yes, I shouldn't be a servant acting like a king, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be, that's not going to help you much. You need to look past the parable. There really is one. You have to look to the king who acted like a servant. 
You see, we're servants acting like kings. Our hearts will never be changed unless our hearts are melted by the king who by rights was a king but who came and acted like a servant. The judge who came was judged. Who's the real servant who served and got no thanks? Everyone, all of his friends. One betrayed him, one denied him, everybody forsook him. You'll never get past being a servant, servants acting like kings, unless you look at the king who was a servant. That's the reason why when Jesus says this is a duty, this is just a duty, forgiveness is a duty, you say, I can't do it. Ah, but as John Newton wrote in that great hymn years ago, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Your duty will be impossible without the beauty. Your duty as a servant who refuses to be a king will be impossible until you see the beauty of the king who is willing to be a servant, who said in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. And there's one last thing. The first thing you need is humility or you'll never be able to forgive. The second thing, though, you don't just need poverty of spirit in order to forgive. You need wealth of spirit. One of the reasons why we have so much trouble forgiving is because of our insecurity. Now, think about this. A lot of you say, I can forgive this and I can forgive this, but there are certain things you haven't been able to forgive. The anger is stifling. Why? If you are insecure about your intellectual ability and somebody makes you look really bad in an argument, you can't deal with your anger. If you're insecure about your romantic desirability and somebody rejects you, you can't deal with it. And you know why? Why does Jesus, why does Luke tell us the story about the lepers who were cleansed? You notice how the lepers stood far away and they called to Jesus. Look at verse 12. They stood far away. Why? Lepers' problems were not mainly their physical problem. Lepers were unclean. Lepers couldn't be touched. Lepers were far away. Lepers couldn't have relationships. But Jesus Christ cleanses and he cleanses a Samaritan. In other words, he was doubly marginalized. And notice at the end, the leper who had to stay far away touches Jesus' feet. You're supposed to see yourself in that. If you ever are so angry that you can't forgive, what you have to say is, is this my cleanliness? Jesus is my cleanliness. Is it my intellectual ability? Is it my figure? Is, is that what makes me? See, if you are trying to deal with your self-worth through these things, besides Jesus, you're trying to deal with that sense of uncleanness and unlovability, you see, with something besides Jesus, then you'll never be able to forgive. You need emotional wealth as well as poverty of spirit. And the emotional wealth comes from seeing that no matter who you are, Jesus, see, and because Jesus was willing, he was so near to the Lord, he was willing to be thrown off, go far, so that those who were far would become near. He was willing to become a leper so we who were lepers could be cleansed. And he loved us like that. If you see yourself as complete in him, if you see yourself as loved in him, if you see the king who became a servant, you'll stop being a servant who's trying to be a king. If you see the one who was clean becoming a leper, you'll stop trying to make yourself clean and live a life of grateful joy like that leper who did come back. And if you do, you'll be able to forgive. There are some people out there who are saying, this is painful. I couldn't do it. <sighs> to withhold forgiveness or give forgiveness will be painful for you. Don't you know? The currency of forgiveness is nails and wood. If you hold on to forgiveness, it'll be painful. But if you give forgiveness, it'll be painful. You choose the pain. When you say, this is too painful, I can't give it up. You think what you're doing right now is painless? 
Look, you're going to be in pain either way. You can choose the pain that will heal, that follows the pain of the Lord who came to resurrection through that death, or you can have the pain that just makes you sink and enslaves you. It's up to you. Christian friends, some of you are here, and you say, I know exactly what, why this sermon happened now. I've got somebody I've got to work with. Some of you say, I'm not really mad at anybody. Don't worry, you will, so remember it. <laughs> if you're not a believer or you're not sure you're a believer, you don't know really where you stand, I would remind you of, the, of Becky Pippard who went to a, 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 she was auditing a Harvard class on, on psychodynamic psychology, and, the, and the, the professor showed how this man had been totally controlled by bitterness toward his mother, and his, uh, at, at Becky Pippert raised her hand and says, great, you've helped him see why his life is distorted, now how do you help him forgive his mother? And he says, well, that's, you know, who's to say? He said, wait a minute, we're the ca- you're the counselor, right? <laughs> how do you help him forgive his mother? And he looked at her and said, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. This is the department, Jesus 101. I have no idea how you can ever get enough poverty of spirit and wealth of spirit at the same time except through the gospel to be forgiving people. This is the only way to go. We're about, after I'm done praying, we'll have a, an offering, and it's the offering to missions. And one of the things I love about this particular uh, story of the lepers is um, Luke is a wonderful universalist. Of all the gospels, Luke likes to say the gospel will break through any barrier. It's, through any, it's for any class of person. It's for any race. It's for any culture. He loves to bring up the fact that it's for lepers, not just respectable people. It's for Samaritans, not just for Jews. He loves this. And he shows that if you're willing to live a life of grateful joy, if your conscience is cleansed, you will need to praise the one who's cleansed you. And you will also see, Luke is trying to say, that the gospel is supposed to go to everybody. It's supposed to go to all people. One of the reasons why an awful lot of us are not good witnesses is because we don't have clear consciences. And one of the reasons why a lot of us are not willing to say, yes, the gospel is for every part of the earth, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, is because we haven't really, through forgiveness, experienced how radically the gospel can change our own hearts. This is our annual missions giving, our annual missions offering. And uh, as you listen to the music, uh, give your hearts as, as well as give your gifts, and then we'll close with our final hymn. But let me pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that you have given us <laughs> this forgiveness. Through this forgiveness comes a humility of spirit, and through this comes a, a confidence and wealth of spirit. And without those things, we would never be able, never be able to forgive. We would go through our lives and people are going to wrong us. People are going to hurt us. People are going to bring us down. And we would be enslaved. And some of us, Lord, are enslaved. Father, many people are afraid. If I forgive this person, then that person has won. Oh, no. You only lose if you stay angry. And I pray, Lord, that you would give people victory because of this, te- this teaching, because of this truth, because of this gospel. Father, we also pray that now we might uh, continue to be a church that knows that this grace should go to everyone in every condition, every place, and we pray that through the International Missions Program we can continue to live out that conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Forgiveness is acceptance now. Here's what I mean. When I, when I looked up this word, forgive, he says, forgive. 
If your brother repents, forgive. I looked up this word in a, in a Greek concordance. Now, a Greek concordance means it shows you every other time the Greek word shows up, and to my astonishment, it comes up dozens of times in the Bible, but it's very seldom translated forgive because it has a very interesting meaning. The word forgive that's used here is a word that simply means let it be where it is. For example, this word shows up twice in Matthew 3.15. I turned to it, and I, what? It's, it's a little Greek word. It's the Greek word ephemi, okay? Jesus in Matthew 3.15 is talking to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has just said, me, <laughs> baptize you? I am not going to do it. I dare not do it. You're asking me to baptize you? I won't do it. I will not do this duty. I will not do this thing. And Jesus says, ephemi, which means, in the old King James, it says, suffer it. And then immediately, John the Baptist, it's in the Greek, it says, and John, a female. Which, and in the old King James, it says, Jesus said, suffer it, <laughs> and John suffered it. In the New International Version, it says, Jesus says, let it be so, and John consented. If you go over to Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a, a servant and a king. And the servant owed the king 10,000 talents, huge sum. And we're told by Jesus, he uses the word again, at this time it is translated forgive. It's one of the only other times he says it this way. It says the king forgave the debt. But now, we, now you're beginning to understand what's going on here? He assumed the debt. Now, to assume a debt is different than holding the debt and waiting to give it away, holding on to it and saying, I'm not going to pay this. I'm not going to pay this. When you get out of prison, when I get you, every time you make a little bit of money, I'm going to take, I'm going to take. No, no. When the king forgave the debt, what did it mean? It mean he let it be. He, he kept it. He had it. He didn't give it away. John the Baptist says, I want to give this away. Jesus says, keep it. But not just keep it. Assume it. Accept it. I want you to do this. Which means, what does it mean to forgive a debt? What does it mean to forgive somebody who sinned? Two things. Number one, the first thing you've got to do is you have to assess how much this person has robbed you of. Whenever somebody sins, wrongs you, sins against you, whenever somebody wrongs you, they also rob you. That's what Jesus is saying here. When someone wrongs you, they've also robbed you. They've robbed you of joy. They've robbed you of a goal. They've robbed you of reputation. They've taken things. They took a goal away. They took some comfort away. They took... They, they took, they've taken something from you. And so the first thing you've got to do if you're ever going to forgive somebody is you've got to be willing to assess the debt. Now, this is not what, I have to, let me be frank here. Many Christians, they don't do this, and here's why you don't. Because your idea of forgiveness is to say, it's not that big a deal. Your idea of forgiveness is to say, it didn't bother me, it didn't get to me. No, no, it's okay. In other words, essentially, a lot of people say, forgiveness means to convince myself it wasn't serious to convince myself it really didn't hurt me, to convince myself I really wasn't robbed. That's how I can forgive. That's how I can get past my anger. And every psychologist in the world will tell you that's dangerous. And Christians maybe are the worst at that. What they, in other, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You have to assess the size of the debt. But then you assume the debt. You don't just hold on to it. Assuming the debt means you pay it. Suffer it. You pay it. You don't hold on and wait to take payments from the person who wronged you. You make payments 
And what happens if you make payments long enough on a debt? It's gone. And if, if you make payments and refuse to take payments, instead of hold on to the debt and wait for payments or try to take payments, then your anger will eventually go. You have to grant forgiveness before it's felt. You make the payments. You assume it. Now, somebody says, what do you mean? Well, okay, let's, let's be real, real specific. If you want to forgive, even when you're angry, you, you determine, I'm no longer, I'm deliberately, consciously, I'm refusing to take payments. Now, how do you take payments from somebody who's wronged you? Well, let me give you a list. Number one, one of the things you can do is you can, when you're, when you're with the person, you can be cold to the person. Or, here's another way to take payments. You can be more demanding and controlling you would be with that person than anybody else. Or, you can try to shame that person by being extremely merciful, but it's a kind of self-righteous sort of mercy. Or, you can actively try to hurt the person. Or you can just ignore the person. In every case, what you're doing is you're taking payments. You see, you're not making payments. You're holding on to the debt, but you're not really assuming the debt. Let me give you some other ways you can take payments. When you're with other people, hey, here's two great ways. You can slice the person's reputation up under the guise of warning people about them. Hey, I think you need to know this about this person. Another way you can take payments is you can slice people's reputation up when you're talking to other people under the guise of sharing your hurt. You can say, I really need somebody to listen to me. And what you're doing is you're taking payments. See, I was robbed, and I'm going to get it out of that person's hide. I'll give you a third way. A third way you can take payments is not just in your relationship to the offender and, uh, and not just in your uh, talking with to other people, but the third way is in your heart you root for that person to hurt. You root for that person to get his comeuppance. You root for that person uh, to fail. You're pulling for, for that person to do, do badly. You're sticking little pins in that person. You're replaying the tapes to justify your anger. And in all those ways, you are trying to exact the price from them. You're trying to take payments. Instead, even though you're angry, you say, I am not going to take payments. I refuse to take payments. And then secondly, I refuse to treat them that way. I refuse to talk about them that way. I refuse to think of them that way. And then secondly, you make payments. And here's what I mean. Making payments is very, very costly. When you're with that person, you're cordial as much as you possibly can be. You do not let that person walk all over you. You don't make it easy for that person to sin. You don't make it easy for that person to sin. Why? That's not loving. Remember, verse 3, you rebuke and forgive. They, they go together. But when you do it, there's got to be plenty of forgiveness. A red face, bulging veins in the neck are never going to change that person. And you know why they're never going to change that person? Because you're rebuking without forgiving. And, of course, you forgive without rebuking. I mean, that's not real forgiveness. And rebuking without forgiveness is really, as we said, is not really, really enlightenment. But you see, if you're with that person, to whatever degree you can, to be cordial and warm, that's costly. That's making payment. Secondly, if you're with that person, uh, you're talking to somebody else, excuse me, you're talking to somebody else, you're talking to someone else, and you affirm and praise that person instead of cut them down, that's costly. And thirdly, in your own heart, if you pray for that person, of course you're praying that the person wakes up, but if you pray 
for that person's prosperity, if you pray for that person's good, if you pull, if, if, you, if you will the good for them, that's costly. That'll be like Gethsemane for you. Because to pray like that, you'll sweat blood. But I say to you, and I hope you can hear this, if you make payments on a debt and you continue to make payments on a debt over and over and you refuse to take payments, but you, refuse, if you make payments, what will eventually happen to that debt? It'll go. If you grant forgiveness, eventually you'll feel it. So you see, forgiveness is a name, forgiveness is an action, forgiveness is assumption of the debt. It's an acceptance. Well, somebody says, you warned me. You warned me I'd be ticked. You warned me I'd be upset. You warned me I'd be confused. You, you warned me that I would say, I can't possibly do this. But yes, you can, because there's something else happening. When the disciples say, increase our faith, everything Jesus says for the rest of that chapter is designed to do it. When, he sa when they say, we can't, Jesus says, there's two things you need, and you can get them. And you know what these two things are? Number one, you've got to be humble in order to forgive. You've got to be humble. One of the reasons, I'll put it to you this way. If you are always late for appointments, and somebody is late for your appointment, fairly easy to forgive, because you don't feel superior. But if you are never late for appointments, and somebody's late for an appointment, it's very hard to forgive. Why? Because if you feel superior to a person, you can't forgive them, and, I'll, and vice versa. If you can't forgive somebody, you definitely feel superior to them at that moment. Jesus Christ tells a story. And why would he tell this story right away? He would say, he would say, imagine you're a servant. Well, now, right away, one of the problems we have in America is we might read our experience of servanthood and slavery into this. And you have to remember that the only servanthood, and, and sometimes they're translated slave, the only servanthood the Bible countenances is this sort of thing, debtor service. If you went into uh, debt to somebody and you couldn't pay them, you didn't just declare bankruptcy, whoops. A somewhat more just approach was you had to work for that person until you, the debt was gone. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is trying to say something. When they say, we can't forgive, what is Jesus saying? He says, does a person who's now working off a debt for a master, does a person who's now working off a debt, does that person expect thanks when they come and just do what they, what they have to do? No. They don't expect thanks. They don't expect applause. This is just what they owe. Do you know what you owe God? That's what Jesus is saying. Do you understand that here's the Lord who gave you everything, and you have been living as if you are his, your own Lord and Savior? See, a lot of people, when they hear Jesus teaching on forgiveness, they say, that is unjust. That is unjust. Why should I pay the debt? That is unjust. Never ask for justice, because God might give it to you. What if everything you ever got away with, what if everything you've ever done wrong, I mean, let's just let's speak humanistically for a second. What if everything you've ever done wrong that you never really, that you got away with. What if for some reason God said, oh, okay, I'll give it to you. When you say, this isn't fair, God says, this is what you owe me. If I ever gave you what you really deserve, you'd be gone. You owe forgiveness because you have gotten so much. So you see, the first thing is, you cannot, and if somebody says, I can't get past my anger, well, I have to say this. You're not remembering who you are. Jesus says you're a servant. And not only that, 
you're a servant acting like a king. When you say, I can't forgive, what you mean is, I am the judge. When you say, I can't forgive, what you mean is, first of all, you, you assume you know enough to know how bad that sin was. You don't know about that person's past. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. You don't know what that person's been through. Only the judge of all the earth would know that. But because you're bitter, you're assuming that though you're a servant, you act like a king. Not only that, you, you can only be bitter if you assume the knowledge that the king of the universe would have, but not only that, you assume the goodness of the king. I mean, the only person that can really forgive, I mean, re really say, this is wrong, it would be a good person, but you're not a good person, not in every old way. And so you say, you're a servant acting like a king, and that's the reason why you're having the problem you're having. Well, Jesus Christ says, you need humility. Where do you get that? Do you just look at Jesus Christ? Yes, you look at Jesus Christ, but not just in general. Here's what you do. The only way you will ever get past this problem, we all have it. You don't know yourself if you don't know that. We are servants acting like kings. Now, if you just look at this parable and you say, yes, I shouldn't be a servant acting like a king. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. That's not going to help you much. You need to look past the parable. There really is one. You have to look to the king who acted like a servant. You see, we're servants acting like kings. Our hearts will never be changed unless our hearts are melted by the king who by rights was a king but who came and acted like a servant. The judge who came was judged. Who's the real servant who served and got no thanks? Everyone, all of his friends. One betrayed him, one denied him, everybody forsook him. You'll never get past being a servant, servants acting like kings unless you look at the king who was a servant. That's the reason why when Jesus says this is a duty, this is just a duty, forgiveness is a duty, you say, I can't do it. Ah, but as John Newton wrote in that great hymn years ago, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Your duty will be impossible without the beauty. Your duty as a servant who refuses to be a king will be impossible until you see the beauty of the king who is willing to be a servant, who said in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. That is one last thing. The first thing you need is humility or you'll never be able to forgive. The second thing, though, you don't just need poverty of spirit in order to forgive. You need wealth of spirit. One of the reasons why we have so much trouble forgiving is because of our insecurity. Now, think about this. A lot of you say, I can forgive this and I can forgive this, but there are certain things you haven't been able to forgive. The anger is stifling. Why? If you are insecure about your intellectual ability and somebody makes you look really bad in an argument, you can't deal with your anger. If you're insecure about your romantic desirability and somebody rejects you, you can't deal with it. And you know why? Why does Jesus, why does Luke tell us the story about the lepers who were cleansed? You notice how the lepers stood far away and they called to Jesus. Look at verse 12. They stood far away. Why? Lepers' problems were not mainly their physical problem. Lepers were unclean. Lepers couldn't be touched. Lepers were far away. Lepers couldn't have relationships. But Jesus Christ cleanses, and he cleanses a Samaritan. In other words, he was doubly marginalized. And notice at the end, the leper who had to stay far away touches Jesus' feet. You're supposed to see yourself in that. If you ever are so angry that you can't forgive, what you have to say is, is this my cleanliness? Jesus is my cleanliness. 
Is it my intellectual ability? Is it my figure? Is, is that what makes me? See, if you are trying to deal with your self-worth through these things, besides Jesus, you're trying to deal with that sense of uncleanness and unlovability, you see, with something besides Jesus, then you'll never be able to forgive. You need emotional wealth as well as poverty of spirit. And the emotional wealth comes from seeing that no matter who you are, Jesus, see, and because Jesus was willing, he was so near to the Lord, he was willing to be thrown off, go far, so that those who were far would become near. He was willing to become a leper so we who were lepers could be cleansed. And he loved us like that. If you see yourself as complete in him, if you see yourself as loved in him, if you see the king who became a servant, you'll stop being a servant who's trying to be a king. If you see the one who was clean becoming a leper, you'll stop trying to make yourself clean and live a life of grateful joy like that leper who did come back. And if you do, you'll be able to forgive. There's some people out there who are saying, this is painful. I couldn't do it. <sighs> to withhold forgiveness or give forgiveness will be painful for you. Don't you know? The currency of forgiveness is nails and wood. If you hold on to forgiveness, it'll be painful. But if you give forgiveness, it'll be painful. You choose the pain. When you say, this is too painful, I can't give it up. You think what you're doing right now is painless? Look, you're going to be in pain either way. You can choose the pain that will heal, that follows the pain of the Lord who came to resurrection through that death, or you can have the pain that just makes you sink and enslaves you. It's up to you. Christian friends, some of you are here, and you say, I know exactly what, why this sermon happened now. I've got somebody I've got to work with. Some of you say, I'm not really mad at anybody. Don't worry, you will, so remember it. If you're not a believer or you're not sure you're a believer, you don't know really where you stand, I would remind you of, the, of Becky Pippard who went to a, 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 a she was auditing a Harvard class on, on psychodynamic psychology, and, the, and the, the professor showed how this man had been totally controlled by bitterness toward his mother, and his, uh, at, at Becky Pippard raised her hand and says, great, you've helped him see why his life is distorted. Now, how do you help him forgive his mother? And he says, well, that's, you know, who's to say? So wait a minute, we're the you're the counselor, right? How do you help him forgive his mother? And he looked at her and said, if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. This is the department. Jesus 101. I have no idea how you can ever get enough poverty of spirit and wealth of spirit at the same time except through the gospel to be forgiving people. This is the only way to go. We're about, after I'm done praying, we'll have a, an offering, and it's the offering to missions. And one of the things I love about this particular a story of the lepers, is um, Luke is a wonderful universalist. Of all the Gospels, Luke likes to say the Gospel will break through any barrier. It's, through any, it's for any class of person. It's for any race. It's for any culture. He loves to bring up the fact that it's for lepers, not just respectable people. It's for Samaritans, not just for Jews. He loves this. And he shows that if you're willing to live a life of grateful joy, if your conscience is cleansed, you will need to praise the one who's cleansed you. And you will also see, Luke is trying to say, that the gospel is supposed to go to everybody. It's supposed to go to all people. One of the reasons why an awful lot of us are not good witnesses is because we don't have clear consciences. And one of the reasons why a lot of us are not willing to say, yes, the gospel is for every part of the earth, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, is because we haven't really, through forgiveness, experienced how radically the gospel can change our own hearts. This is our annual missions giving, our annual missions offering, and uh, as you listen to the music, uh, 
give your hearts as, as well as give your gifts, and then we'll close with our final hymn. But let me pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that you have given us <laughs> this forgiveness. Through this forgiveness comes a humility of spirit, and through this comes a, a confidence and wealth of spirit. And without those things, we would never be able, never be able to forgive. We would go through our lives, and people are going to wrong us. People are going to hurt us. People are going to bring us down, and we would be enslaved. And some of us, Lord, are enslaved. Father, many people are afraid. If I forgive this person, then that person has won. Oh, no. You only lose if you stay angry. And I pray, Lord, that you would give people victory because of this, te this teaching, because of this truth, because of this gospel. Father, we also pray that now we might uh, continue to be a church that knows that this grace should go to everyone in every condition, every place, and we pray that through the International Missions Program we can continue to live out that conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.